You're listening to Selfish. This is where we bring self-care and bravery together to encourage you to follow your dreams. Here's your host, your favorite selfish enthusiast, Ali Hembry Martin. Emily Bowler bravely shares the struggles she has faced her entire life. But the beauty of these struggles is that now she's able to reflect and share her journey in order to help others not feel so alone. In return, it has helped her heal. Emily, thank you so much for being with me here today. It's a pleasure to be here, Allie. Good to talk to you. First, tell us about yourself. Well, I grew up on a farm just outside of Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm a farm kid. And... I, from the time I was just a little tiny, tiny girl, I wanted to be an artist. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to draw and paint, and that's all I did as a little child. But in the midst of all that, even when I was six years old, I was chunky, you know, nothing, nothing earth shattering or anything. And my mom put me on my first diet in first grade, actually. And and um, went to school with a little thermos of soggy lettuce with Catalina salad dressing, a grapefruit, hard-boiled egg. And that was my lunch. And so the restrictive dieting started at age six, which just boomeranged, and I wanted to eat anything. And my mom, being from a farm, you know, my mom grew up in the Depression, and then during World War II, they had rationing. So by the time the 60s came along, you know, mothers were just overfeeding their children, I think to compensate for the childhood they didn't have. But my mom, she was the best cook around. We had homemade blueberry pies and homemade noodles and, you know, just everything. So I I continued to gain weight all through my elementary school's age. And then I literally just quit eating because I knew in order to go to high school, to survive high school, you got to understand, up to this time, I had never been able to get into a pair of jeans. And so I, I literally starved myself to fit into jeans and make it through high school, got real popular because I was quote unquote normal size. Well, then after I was eventually diagnosed with anorexia my senior year, and then they told me to start eating again. So I started eating and then I boomeranged the other way. Again, I became obese. And for about 20 years of my adult life, I was 100 pounds overweight. And um, at age 42, I had a heart cath. I had heart disease already at age 42. By the time I was 47, I had high blood pressure. And it was no longer a matter of losing weight to get into a skinny pair of jeans or something. It was, I had five children by this time, and I still had them living at home, and they were going to lose a mother to a stroke or heart attack. You know, it was not a matter of if I was going to have one, but when. And so um, I went on, I, I actually found a doctor, Dr. Joel Furman, who wrote the book Eat to Live. And he talks about, you know, putting lots of nutrients in our bodies and it shuts off that addictive craving motor to food addiction. Or, you know, if we've been raised on sugar, most of us have some degree of a food addiction. Um, And so anyhow, I started, I made it into an art exhibit, actually, and I posted it online, not thinking it would 
you know, just friends would look at it. Well, it ended up going viral, but I documented the year I lost 100 pounds. I made it into an art exhibit. It's still up there. It's been 11 years now. It's called Transformation on my website. But And I lost the 100 pounds and got my health back. And heart disease has gone away. The diabetes has gone away. And I say, you know, that's where I'm at today is I'm living um, – healthy. I have energy to go into the rest of my years here on earth. And um, I'm mobile. I can ride bikes. I can jog. I can do it, walk distances and hike. And so that's my story in a nutshell. I love that. And so now that leads us to where you are today. And you just came out with your first book, Starved Obesity. Yes. So talk to us, you know, what part of that journey you went through in life led you to write this book? You know, if I would have had this book when I was 16 years old, if my parents would have had this book, if my physician would have had this book, if my uh, church pastor would have had this book, I mean, people who are in my circle of influence, if they could have had this book, they would have understood what food addiction is and how to prevent it from children. And it, it would have been, it would have helped navigate the process. And I would have saved years of pain and suffering that I did not have to suffer with all those years if I would have just had some education way back when I was in high school, how to get out of food addiction, and then those who lived around me to support me through that and to understand oh my goodness, we don't want to be feeding this to our kids. It's just addicting them. And so that's why I wrote it. I I just lived through so much pain that was not necessary because of lack of, just ignorance, lack of education. Hmm. And so, you know, you, you talk about this food addiction. Why do you feel like that is so prevalent in our culture today? Oh, my goodness. Well, number one, you know, when we're little kids, what's the first thing? We go to the bank and get a sucker. Everything's a treat. You know, treat. you go to church, you get donuts, you go to school, someone hands out a birthday treat. We're inundated with sugar and processed food. In fact, today, they're even putting sugar in French fries to, to make French fries even more addictive. And the salt, it's it's everywhere we go. And even if we want to get out of the addiction, I call them food bullies. You know, um, grandma or Aunt Betty will say, oh, but I made your favorite pie just for you. You know, we even if we want to get out of it, we have people surrounding us that are constantly making sure we have plenty of addictive food. And so that's why it's so hard to get out of for most people. Hmm. Now, in your studies of food addiction, what's something that maybe we wouldn't have known or would be surprised to learn specifically about food addiction? Well, the standard American diet, and by meaning the meaning of that would be um, highly palatable foods, high salt foods, high fat foods, highly processed foods and sweet foods, which is Basically, what the standard American diet consists of, um, it creates these toxic um, metabolites in our body that create, it, it activates the dopamine 
uh, response in our brain that's just as addictive as cocaine. And so, you know, if you've ever seen any kind of a little video clip of someone trying to get out of a cocaine addiction and they're, you know, they, they're just struggling. Well, we have that same struggle when we're trying to clean those toxins out of our bodies. Um, you know, some people get headaches, some people shake, some people get real nauseous. Um, a lot of people have what's called brain fog. They just can't concentrate. And the minute they eat that donut or the minute they have that granola bar or whatever it is, um, they're instantly feel better, instantly. And so, you know, that's why it's so hard to pull out of this addiction because the cravings sometimes can be so overwhelmingly powerful that we have to have a bite of something in order to just function. Yep. I can totally see that. Yeah. Yes. So, obviously, you lost the weight. Um, yes. And it was through research and kind of, you know, finding, you know, that right track for you. So, I would love for you to okay. share, like, what some of your favorite go-to recipes are. Okay. Well, I'll, first I want to explain something here real quick at the beginning. Um, the way to get out of the addiction is to put lots of high-nutrient foods in our bodies. That cleans the toxins quicker than anything. And what I mean by high-nutrient foods, foods that have lots of uh, high-nutrient value, phytochemicals, minerals. So we're talking about the vegetables, fruit, um, and, and like kale scores a thousand on the nutrient density score compared to like bread, white, a piece of white bread scores way low, like two. And, you know, when I was a hundred pounds overweight, I was probably eating 200 points a day of nutrient value. And today easily I am consuming four to 5,000 points a day Yay. of nutrients. Yeah. So that's why even why I titled my book, Starved Obesity, because when we're lacking those nutrients, we just try to eat and eat and eat to make up for those cravings. So, so with that in mind, I have a kale smoothie for breakfast and I love it. I just put in, um, in a, in like a high speed blender, a container, a couple handfuls of raw kale. I put in there some water. Um, I put in almonds and flax seed and some blueberries, frozen blueberries, I put in a ripe banana and I blend that together and I, I increase the water if I, you know, if it's getting stuck and it needs a little bit more liquid, but that is my go-to for breakfast. I love it. And it gets lots of nutrients in my body first thing in the morning. And I, I even like a kale salad. I'll take kale and shred it up. I de-stem de it first because the, the stem of kale is very bittery hard you don't want to eat that but okay. I shred it up and then I I mix some diced a um, little bit of diced red onion and a little bit of diced red pepper and I take the juice of one lemon and a ripe avocado I dice it up and I massage that lemon and avocado into the kale and it's usually best the next day because that lemon juice as it marinates that, those kale leaves, it makes it less bitter and softer. And, oh, is I mean, I could eat bowls and bowls of that. It is so delicious. And sometimes I'll sprinkle pumpkin seeds on top or walnuts. 
uh, to get some nuts and seeds in there because when you eat a plant-based fat such as nuts, seeds, avocado with the dark green vegetables, it increases their absorption into our body by 10 times. So you always always want to make sure you're having a plant-based fat because a plant-based fat is good for your arteries, which animal fats are not. But you want to have a plant-based fat with your greens. And then another little trick I love is called it's a cherry sorbet. I just take a little bag of frozen uh, dark sweet cherries and get them in the, the produce in the frozen section of any grocery store. And then a, a bag of frozen chunks of pineapple. And I put that in the blender and it's a high speed blender. I have a Vitamix and it makes a sorbet, just equal amounts, a little bit of liquid, not much. And oh, it is so delicious, especially on a hot summer day. That is like, oh, you'd never know that, you know, there wasn't tons of sugar in it or something. It's just very refreshing. And, you know, it kind of sounds like this is very similar to to me going through my health journey you really have to get creative with these healthy foods. Um, yeah. You can't just, you know, I kind of think I had the mentality that, um, you know, if you are going to have a salad for lunch, it's going to be some lettuce and, um, you know, maybe there's a couple tomatoes on there, but, you know, really adding those um, also nutrient dense ingredients to make it a really enjoyable meal and something you look forward to and not just, oh, it's a plain old salad. Absolutely. And I, you know, Dr. Furman talks about the salad is the main part of the meal. And I mean, I've eaten at his house before that, you know, their salad is huge. I mean, it's in today, I have my salads in a humongous bowl so that I can toss it as I go. And in there, I put uh, romaine lettuce, kale leaves. You know, it it varies from day to day. But I chop up some, um, you know, diced red pepper, um, a little bit of onion. I'll put in shredded carrots. I'll put in uh, some, you know, leftover mushrooms from the refrigerator. I will put in just everything but the kitchen sink almost into that salad and toss it up with some balsamic vinegar or a plant-based dressing. And I sit there and eat that huge salad and I love it. I mean, I've been doing this 11 years. I'm still not tired of my salads. I put, you know, little pieces of strawberry in there and some blueberries sometimes and some uh, chopped up cantaloupe even. And the fruit flavors, it's so delicious. I never grew up, you know, a salad was a little tossed salad. And we're talking when they say tossed out, you know, some iceberg lettuce with a little piece of tomato on it. And that was called a salad. And, you know, if you can get in the habit of just dumping everything yeah, I put garbanzo beans in that salad and, and just keep tossing it as I eat and the flavors just melt together. It is delicious. I love it. You're making me want one right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so kind of switching over to, you know, being a first time author. Yeah. What was the most difficult part of, you know, writing the book and, and just getting it out there into the public? 
Oh, my goodness. It took me seven years, if you can believe that, seven years. But um, I actually started it um, about eight years ago. And six months into writing it, I have a 20-year-old son at that time. He died by suicide. And it just took me on a journey eventually into some really dark, a dark season of deep grief and anguish. And so I actually put the book away and I was never even going to finish it. It was just sitting in my computer and my, now he's my son-in-law, but my daughter's boyfriend at that time was a writing uh, major in college. And he came to visit one Christmas and he said, you know, Esther, my, which is my daughter, she said, Esther said, you've written a book. I said, oh yeah, it's in my computer, but I have no interest in getting it back out. Cause at that point I was still like, I was just surviving every day, getting through the, the, the grief. And, and he said, well, let me, let me take a look at it. And I said, no, it's not really that, you know, big of a deal. And he says, no, let me at least read the first chapter. So he read it and he said, you need to get this out there. People need to hear this. You know, he was, he's the one who encouraged me to get it back out. So I got back out there again and finished it. Actually, I rewrote it because the first version was before my son died. So I had so much more to talk about emotional eating and getting through really hard times other than just the nutrients. And so the second version, which is the version I have now, um, it's so much more applicable to anybody going through a hard time, which there's not too many people who don't go through hard times, but, but, but I wrote that version in three weeks, literally from start to finish. And, and I hired an editor to edit it. And he was like wanting me to come to his apartment and all kinds of stuff. It was really getting weird. And I opened up the paper one morning. He was a college professor, a local college professor who did this editing on the side. And there on the front page of the paper, he, all these college girls, you know, it was the me too thing all over. And I'm thinking, oh no, you know. So I had to fire that guy and just one thing after another. And then I was told my Facebook following wasn't big enough and Oh, I had so many obstacles of discouragement. And if I could say anything to anybody who's thinking of writing a book, it's a calling. If you have a message within you, it's a calling. And no matter how many obstacles that come your way, if it's in you, it's got to get out. It's got to just keep persevering through. And, I, and then there's seasons you put it away and you say, I'm never going to touch it again, but if it's in you, it's going to keep coming out. You can't help but get it out. And Emily, gosh, I mean, you've, you have been through it all. And uh, I mean, I think that's a true testament to the fact that just as you're saying, it is your story and you needed to get it out there, but also you've been there and you understand those struggles of how food can be an emotional, um, support system and so oh. you know w working through those times not just the everyday normal times oh absolutely you know depression depression and 
there's different layers of depression. There's, you know, mild depression and then there's, you know, pretty major depression. So, you know, we're talking about the whole spectrum. If, if I can give you a, a statistic here, in any given year, 20, uh, 18 to 20% of the U.S. population gets the flu in any given year. 27% suffer some degree of mental illness and depression is a big one. Wow. And, you know, the brain, the brain is an organ. It gets sick just as much as the heart, the kidneys, the skin. You know, we get skin rashes. You know, the brain gets sick too. And, and to have a, um, a way, you know, when we're depressed, we go, our dopamine levels get really low. And so we go to those things that try to increase that, which is high-fat foods, high-sugar foods. Some people go to alcohol. Some people go to porn. Um, you know, whatever it is that increase those dopamine hits, that's what we typically turn to when we're in that depressed state of mind. And so that's why it's so important to understand that when we are feeling low, um, to find ways, whether it's exercise or meditation, any kind of self-care, that will increase our endorphins and not feed those the dopamine receptors and it down regulates and gets us all the more we need more and a lot of people turn to um you know really addictive foods during that time i gained some weight during that time because i gravitated towards the lower nutrient foods like granola bars and things that just weren't really valuable for my health to get me out of the addiction. And so I found myself addicted again, you know, here I had all the success for several years. And then all of a sudden I found myself addicted to food again. And so, you know, I, I encourage anybody to understand our brains are just such precious organs and to take good care of our brains. Talk to us about kind of the rewarding parts of telling your story and writing this book? You know, what's been the most enjoyable part? I, for me, this is me personally, when I get feedback uh, from complete strangers who took the time to write me saying they cried, it touched the deep places of their heart, it's setting them free, they're understanding the power of this addiction. You know, that was... Not that I want to have a book to make people cry. That was not my goal. But to know that this book is impacting people, that I don't care above anything. I don't care if only five people are ever touched by it. Just to know it touched someone's life out there. To me, that's the most rewarding part. And it has touched many more than that. But, but just to know that it's helping somebody it makes it worth all the tears. I literally cried a lot of tears writing that book and the pain of living life just to have that story. So um, just to know that it's touching people in the deep places of their life and helping them, helping them out of this crazy, nasty ad addiction. It's, it's unbelievable to me. And I, I love hearing stories like yours because we never know where this journey is going to lead us. Um, and yes. sometimes it takes several years to figure out why something happened in your life and why you're meant, why that was meant to happen to you. Um, you know, how you're going to 
make turn that into a positive situation. So I love hearing the obstacles that you overcame because we all face those obstacles no matter what they look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes they bring us such reward in the long run. Absolutely. And, you know, there was a point in time I got so discouraged, so disheartened that I had to call a suicide hotline for myself one night because mm. I knew I was just going to that dark, dark place. And, you know, and oh, thankful there's suicide hotlines out there because they don't, you know, they, they walk you through it. They talk you through it. They make sure you get to a counselor ASAP and I'm not saying I would have done it, acted upon what I was thinking, but, mm-hmm. you know, the obstacles sometimes could get so dark, we can get into places that are so discouraging, but if we can hold on and make it through, we get to the other side, we look back and say, oh my goodness, that was a hard time, but I made it through. I made it through. And now I can share something. You will get through this, you know, and that's what's the encouraging part about going through hard times. When you're on the other side, you're able to help others, you know, throw the life raft to them. Say you too can make it, you know, this is just temporary. And they always say, you know, suicidal thoughts are, what are you afraid of? It's usually something you're afraid of during that time. And a lot of times we get to the other side and say, that didn't even happen. You know, I had all this fear for nothing. Hmm. So anyhow, so yeah, in like in childhood, I was called names all the time because I was a chubby kid. Oh my goodness, every day, just the abuse on the playground, the abuse even by, you know, relatives and people, you know, back in the, when I was a little kid, it was pretty much acceptable to call names. I mean, that was just Nobody thought anything of it. Uh, the verbal abuse was pretty prevalent in the culture. And, you know, that scars children. And so, you know, there was a lot of scarring that went on in my childhood. And at the time, it was terrible. But looking back, I'm able to help people through that now, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we go through hard times sometimes to help others through those hard times. Mm. I believe that to be true. Yes. So in thinking about the show and Mm -hmm. being selfish and, you know, we're not looking at that as a negative connotation. It is, you know, looking at, you know, ways that you can take care of yourself so that you can take care of others. So you can help those others, um, you know, through those hard times. So what are your personal ways that you like to be selfish? Oh my goodness. I love that. I love selfishness. I love in (laughs) self-care because I learned the hard way what happens when you don't take care of yourself first. But I think um, for me, you know, saying no to overcommitment is my number one thing because I'm from a culture, especially, you know, I think we're in this culture. We glorify being busy and mm-hmm. industrious and productive. So as long as we can come across as we're being productive and we're doing all this and we're you know, showing everything we can do on social media because we're so productive, we don't want to look, quote unquote, lazy. And for me, when I take good care of myself, it's because I have 
carved out in my schedule lots of time for that care. It takes time to exercise every morning. It takes time to prepare healthy food. It takes time to meditate, to look there. You look lazy laying there meditating. I mean, that looks lazy, you know, in our culture's viewpoint. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's the best thing we can do. And for me, it's taking time to go up to Lake Michigan and just watch the sunset. It's it's taking time to just relax and do nothing. I recharge. I know this sounds ambiguous, but it's how I recharge. I recharge by doing nothing sometimes. Mm -hmm. And once a day or once a week, I have to have a day. I call it my Sabbath where I don't have anything anything that I absolutely have to do that day. And it looks lazy to take a day where you just schedule nothing. But I have found I don't put makeup on that day. I don't, you know, I don't have to dress up to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I just do nothing. That is my best self-care. Because in, in, in that day I, of doing nothing, that's when I recharge. And if I can tell the weeks that I get overbooked, I get, you know, I don't take, I don't take that day to just do nothing. I can tell I start getting, um, I start emotional eating more. I start going back to being on Facebook too much because I'm trying to fill mm. in that void. I'm trying, I'm trying to get that dopamine up, you know, because I didn't get recharged. So I'm trying to do it through addictive ways, which we all know is crazy. That's so fascinating. And, you know, I feel like our culture has gotten away from holding the Sabbath holy and yes. uh, and actually doing what the Sabbath is meant to be, which is a day of rest. Yes. Um, and, you know, even if for most people that is Sunday, um, Sundays are jam-packed because Saturdays are jam-packed. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to get in your errand somewhere. I do think our culture has gotten away from um, really investing in a day of rest. Oh, absolutely, yes. So I love that you even see beyond that and see where your body is kind of saying, hey, I need that rest. Um, mm-hmm. And when you aren't getting it, you see those negative responses. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's something that I personally want to um, challenge myself to um, practice more of. But but also I love just to know that, you know, there really is a benefit to, to resting. You know, it's not just something mm-hmm. that we're supposed to do. Um, mm-hmm. There is a benefit to it. Absolutely. And, and like I say, you know, We'll find it some way to make up, and it's usually the really destructive, addictive patterns that we'll go to just because we're sucking air. You know, we, mm. our bodies need that rest, and, um, you know, if we don't get it, we'll, we'll pay for it. We'll find, our bodies will find a way to get it, and it's through, you know, destructive ways. Is there anything you wish you could be doing more? Oh, yes, right now. You know, I have set aside a couple years here, you know, to get the book written and published and now, you know, getting out there with the book and speaking and things. And I have totally put my painting side away of me. I am a painter at heart. I draw, I paint, I'm an expressive painter and I'm itching to get back to the easel and I haven't been able to. And so that's, you know, 
that's definitely something I want to be doing more is getting back to the creative side. I've been creative with words and a whole new whole new avenue of creativity has opened up with the book and speaking. But I want to get back to my visual creativity roots here as soon as I, I am able to. So that's fun. Yes. What's next for Emily? Oh, my goodness. You know, I'm I actually you know, I'm doing a lot of speaking, but. I'm this summer I'm I'll be speaking even you know like at Harvard I it's just doors are opening for me to speak in places I never dreamed of and it's it's I don't know I'm on this path I'm speaking I don't know where this is all unfolding Mm -hmm. I'm I'm in a suicide video meaning I'm a parent of a child who's died by suicide so I've become quote-unquote the poster child for Fort Wayne, they, I'm the mm-hmm. go-to, the ministers go to who need someone to talk, talk about suicide. So I'm in a big video here coming up this summer um, to promote getting help for going through the aftermath of a suicide. And so I don't know where that's going. So, and of course, greeting cards, that's always been, I want to get out with my greeting cards. I have a whole line of greeting cards I want to get out there. Wow. But, you know, my my creative side, I have all these creative avenues and they've all... <laughs> They've all sort of like are at a they're in a stirring pot right now, and I'm like just seeing what's gonna you know unfold here as I pursue different things. I love this, Emily. I mean, you have so many fun things going on, but I'm I'm also so glad that you went through with writing your book uh, despite the obstacles and despite the hurdles that um, met you through this journey. Um, but I really appreciate you talking with us today and we're going to keep our eyes out for you, um, and all the exciting things you have coming down your path. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Allie. Thank you for, um, talking to me today. (laughs) Like what you just heard? Visit us at SelfishThePodcast.com. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes today.